Okay. Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and welcome to today's Thursday noon town hall forum. I'm Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective, that continues to be the rubric, the theme, that holds these forums together. The voice today is that of our guest, Dr. Martin E. Marty. In Dr. Marty's little book, entitled By Way of Response, which tells the story of his own journey, Dr. Marty comments on page 26, the most rich and varied lives, I contend, are about one thing. The most rich and varied lives are about one thing. Certainly, Martin Marty's life is rich and varied. He is the Fairfax M. Cohn Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. He teaches the history of modern Christianity at the Chicago Divinity School. He is associate editor of the Christian Century. Most of us who read that journal begin by going to the back page and reading his recurring memo, M-E-M-O, which is sometimes comforting and pastoral in flavor, often discomforting, but ever human, caring, and perceptive. He is the author of some 20 books and innumerable articles. He has co-authored many more books and articles. He is a Lutheran, respected by them all, I understand. <laughs> he is a brilliant and leading ecumenist. He is a lively and professional historian. And I've only begun to list his contributions, his involvements, but I must stop, turn the corner, and say that his life in all of its variety is also about one thing, responding to the presence of God, responding as he is led in all these various settings and disciplines to the presence of God, something that he keeps inviting us all one way and another to do. There was a time, which many of us in this room can remember, when there were eight or ten voices on the American church scene whose names, reputations, convictions were widely known and respected. They served as a kind of, of glue, holding us all together on the American and larger church scene. There are all too few such voices today, but we are glad, we can be thankful, that Martin Marty is one such voice. It seems fitting also that, that this man, who by his example and word calls us to both honor our respective traditions and to reach out beyond them, should be the forum speaker in the midst of Westminster's celebration of its 125th anniversary of life here in the center of Minneapolis. Dr. Marty, we welcome you. Thank you, Pastor Mizell, for that generous introduction and for your agency in helping stage Town Hall Forum. In January, Senator Howard Baker predicted that the next three months would be the ugliest in recent history on Capitol Hill because social issues were to come up. Abortion, the school prayer issue, control of pornography, and other issues about which Americans feel very deeply and in which cases the deep feelings are grounded in religious viewpoints. The three months have come and gone, and Capitol Hill was ugly enough, but not about those issues. The budget seemed to be preoccupying it. March 21, I chanced to read a Des Moines newspaper that said that the economy, unemployment, international problems, had so overwhelmed the nation that the social agenda has been postponed and that the forces, particularly in the far Christian right, 
but other parts of the spectrum as well, that had wanted to bring up these divisive issues have been pushed aside and haven't quite realized what happened to them. A third illustration, in recent weeks, suddenly, with a force few of us could have foreseen, people across the political and the religious spectrum, from the very conservative Cardinal John Kroll to the more moderate Billy Graham to people in the churches across the land, are raising the issue of nuclear disarmament. And it has again preoccupied us, so we haven't taken a close look at these issues that we thought divided us. And against that background of these issues, it may seem that some of the religious concerns that had preoccupied us have to be shelved. And yet, individuals are still in their search for meaning, and groups are in their search for belonging, and the clashes are there, even if transferred to economic and nuclear concerns. In the individual search for meaning. Children are born. Parents express love. People wonder what values to transmit to a new generation. We worry about how we shall live. We ask about the ethics of our professions. We must, each of us, do our own falling in love and caring and finding friends and aging, despairing and dreaming, dying and hoping. And in groups, we seek as children playmates, as adolescents peers find us. The group into which we fall or of which we are a part determines so much of our value and moral system. We belong to subcultures organized around our taste. We may be a member of a student generation, a political movement. Most people gathered here, I presume, would have deep rootage in a specific church. We are of a race, an ethnic group. Who am I and to what do I belong determines very much of your life and mine. <clears throat> and meaning and belonging are issues that will remain urgent for us if we are to meet social, economic, and war and peace issues. Because if we are fearful, insecure, preoccupied, we cannot be free to take on these issues, and we will likely misconceive them in a dangerous way. And I want to spell out a little bit of what that danger might be. In the longer title that I sent, too long to be printed in the program, I mentioned the tribe, the ghetto, the cocoon, over against the larger American religious vision. And I simply can't let those marvelous images go away because the space squeezes them out. Let me talk just a moment about the three of them. The tribe. I doubt whether any of you woke up this morning thinking of yourselves as being members of a tribe, but it's a code word for your peoplehood to whom you belong. And happy are ye if you belong. You may be. Presbyterian, Minneapolitan, Republican or DFL, poor, elite, gopher, Jew, Christian, harmless group, dangerous group, good, bad, mean, non-mean. Whatever it is, somehow or other, many of the signals of your life are gained from that instinctive background group to which you belong. The second of the images I use is of the ghetto. If the tribe signifies your peoplehood, ghetto signals location. Again, I don't fancy many waking up and saying I live in a ghetto. Ghetto was the historic word for the place in which the Jews of late medieval Italy were sequestered. And it's come to mean ever since a place where people of a single kind are pushed off by themselves the black ghetto, the Hispanic ghetto of the modern American metropolis. But the Oxford English Dictionary, in its new supplement, lets us apply the word ghetto to any gathering of people in a particular place and in a circumstance in which they feel that outside pressures are imposed on them and they also then develop a mentality of like-mindedness within.
you don't really have to live in the same place to live in the same place. In the age of radio and television, you tend to sequester yourself by picking a certain channel, by picking a certain place on the dial. You sequester yourself in certain bookstores as opposed to other bookstores, certain clubs as opposed to other clubs. And as much as we think of America as being a diverse and a pluralist society, we meet far fewer kinds of people than we think we do, or at least intimately. And an expert group on church growth has learned that churches grow when they tend to follow what they call the homogeneous unit principle of like finding like. And that's a ghetto. We all live somehow or other in these ghettos, and people in the ghetto experience have found that they're not all bad. Gary Wills, the rather sardonic and often cynical columnist, reviewed his own life in the childhood of a Catholic ghetto with Latin and no meat on Friday and making the sign of the cross at the free throw line and all those other practices that seemed to be disappearing as time passed. And he said, yes, we had our own lingo and our own place in the world and others didn't like us and we often fought with each other within. It was a ghetto, but it wasn't the worst place to grow up. I was at Notre Dame a year or two after the Vatican Council when a former priest who was fighting Mother Church or Father Church, whatever it was to him, in Oedipal rage gave a speech that I considered to be obscene and blasphemous and got a standing ovation. And I asked a student why that was going, and he said, since you're not a Catholic, you'll never know. The Church gave us this tremendous identity crisis. And I said, before you worry about that identity crisis, maybe you should be grateful that you ever belong to something strong enough to give you an identity to have a crisis about. And that's something of what our ghettos are supposed to do to us. They're not all bad. And my third image is that of the cocoon. If the tribe is for peoplehood and ghetto for location, cocoon is for outlook. The cocoon is kind of a translucent shell around us. We know there are other things going on. There are shadowy forms there, but what concerns us most vitally is the life within that cocoon. And as you study American groups, you'll see too that this is how we have lived. We're aware of a larger culture, but we have great difficulty finding empathy for the more remote parts. We want everyone else to be like we are. We say America would do well in ethics, values, and morals if it lived by absolutes. But when there's a clash of absolutes, the debate usually ends the way an exchange goes with a good friend of mine at the end of many an argument when he says, well, Marty, I guess we have to agree to disagree. You do things your way and I'll do things God's way. <laughs> we do. We find that this outlook around us, which is indeed again comforting and necessary for a whole healthy life, can imprison us from the vision, the larger vision. If the tribe and the ghetto and the cocoon have their positive places but can go wrong, we learn what goes wrong when we compare them, if that's all we know, to what in the title today we are calling the larger vision in America and in American religion. If these are the smaller visions, what are the larger visions? Three of these, first of all, a republic, race publica, the things that happen in the public order. The public order does not mean only politics. It means town hall, forum, and mall, and marketplace, and gallery, and concert hall. It means the place where people get together to compare their symbols, to learn what it is in the other tribes and ghettos and cocoons, to learn whether there are things they all have in common and issues they cannot reach by themselves. The American Republic's motto is E Pluribus Unum, out of many we are always in the process of becoming one, and it applied originally to colonies or states, but it is a good image to use throughout our national life. And when you want a republic, you have to learn the limits of your own group's claims. We who study or speak in the religious realm are most aware of this 
in the light of the long human story of suffering caused by religion. Just before America was born, the French philosopher Voltaire said, almost enviously as they looked across the channel to England, if England had one religion, it would kill, persecute. If it had two religions, they would kill each other. Since it has 30, they have to learn to live with each other. Our yearbook last year had 222. That's only a beginning and we'd better. James Madison said, the multiplicity of sects and interests can assure the conversation out of which a republic grows. That's part of the larger vision, and for most Americans it has historically been grounded in their religious outlook. Similarly, secondly, the larger vision is that religion has a dual character. On the one hand, it must assure the integrity of your own belief, and yet it impels you to seek the common good. Benjamin Franklin and most of the founders spoke again and again, not of how can we have a state religion that allows the sects out there, but how can we take the various churches and philosophies and draw something from each of them to have what he liked to call public virtue. And so religion in a society that has assured greater freedom for it than any previous society assures that your pursuit of your salvation your gift of the grace of God can be grasped in your communities in diverse ways, and, and yet you also owe out of the abundance of that vision something to the public order. And third, we have a vision of the human family. As America was being formed, people like Hector Saint-Jean, Crevecourt, and many others ever since have asked, is something new happening in the human race? Is this experiment something which might be a signal that the whole world could see, that at last people could live together? Millennium, utopia, kingdom of God. They used many different pictures to suggest this. And when we talked about an American mission to the world, we didn't always mean by the sword or the dollar sign. We often meant the example of diverse groups understanding each other. This is that larger vision. There's something left of the vision. We have these forums, we have interfaith groups, National Conference of Christians and Jews, Religion in American Life, a warm and impressive ecumenical relations, Protestant and Catholic and the many diverse sorts of Protestantism, in local communities, in state and national organizations seek to bring people together across the boundaries of tribe and ghetto and outside the shell of cocoon. We are not, in other words, Lebanon without guns, in which each group is somehow posed off utterly and always against every other. In our personal lives, we see many signs of people being able to draw on the strength of the local and then to understand each other across the boundaries. Intermarriage is not nearly the trauma or tragedy it used to be regarded when people across the boundaries of ethnic or religious groups marry. The Experience of mass higher education has brought people of diverse backgrounds together. We bump into each other in many kinds of forums. That goes on. And for all the complication they've brought to our life, the media also have certainly served to keep something of this larger vision alive. We can, by acts of empathy, follow the life of a Golda Meir, the experience of roots, the understanding of Holocaust, the Adams family, the Waltons, people of many different backgrounds blending in our living room and forcing us to ask what would it have been like to have lived then and there in that tribe or ghetto or cocoon which is not my own. But having said those rather cheerful things about it, we also have to say, looking at the world and the republic, that the dream of the republic, of the religiously rooted spirit of concord and of a vision for the human family are at the moment compromised, eclipsed, and shadowed. At the turn of the century, there were many symbols in the acronyms, the alphabet soup of world life that pointed to the extension of this dream. The United Nations was supposed to have been a world town hall forum, but it has turned into a sequence of mutually contradictory voices that speak where there are no ears to hear. 
United World Federalism is now seen as an utterly beside the point theme to the vast majority of people. World councils of churches, Vatican councils of the whole Catholic Church, these seem postponed as plausible dreams for many. The images that moved people a generation ago of a global village of spaceship Earth are not heard often. Indeed, I would leave with you a challenge if you'd like to put on spectacles with which to view the whole world. Find me any place in the world today where movements designed to bring people closer together, religiously grounded, philosophically grounded, are prospering at the expense of those that are teaching tribalism, namely that only my tribe is right, ghettoism, that if you do not live in this place where I live, you are at the wrong place, or life in the cocoon, that something beyond the translucent shell is important. Anywhere that they are prospering, those that are absolutist and aggressive and militant about their standing off by themselves are everywhere prospering. And a new spirit of fanaticism has reached into tribes from Iran through Israel to America. The fanatic is someone in Peter Finley Dunn's Mr. Dooley's marvelous phrase, the fanatic is someone who knows that he's doing exactly what the Lord would do if the Lord were also in possession of the facts. <laughs> Why worry now? Let's take a global view and a domestic view. Harold Isaac says, around the world today there is a massive convulsive ingathering of peoples into their separatenesses and over-againstnesses in order to protect their pride and power and place in the face of the real or presumed threat of others with their pride and power and place. We see this usually on the large scale. Hindu versus Muslim in the subcontinent of Asia. One year, several hundred were killed because a sacred cow was killed by Muslims, and another year, several hundred are killed in a war outbreak because a pig is on Muslim soil. In the Middle East, the Jewish and the Muslim clash. In Northern Ireland, the Protestant and the Catholic. In Lebanon, as already referred to. Very sometimes very small sets of people are articulating their vision over against all others. The Basques between Spain and France, the Quebecois. I'm Swiss and I better even note that the Swiss who have a good reputation for the Republic have uprisings by the Jural people over against the rest of the Swiss. It's a contagion and a fever born of shortages, of hunger, of poverty, of injustice, of indignity, and sometimes born of triviality and pride and banality. We can't easily judge them. We can ask what can we do where we are to improve the circumstance of both justice and civility. And if that's true globally, we have seen an increase domestically. We use code names for it, like single-issue politics. Nothing wrong with single-issue politics if we have many single issues. But when we determine entirely what the future of the Republic will be like when, by determining whether people are only with us on our one particular cause, we greatly impoverish the Republic. This is not a property only of the right, and it can come as much of the left and I can join that 71% in this morning's poll in enthusiastic support of a nuclear freeze and well know that it too can generate very soon the bumper stickers, the language, the jargon of tribe and ghetto and cocoon that rules out as inhuman those who haven't understood our motives for doing what we're doing. Christian yellow pages, our sequestering of ourselves from the commerce of our fellow citizens. The idea that I must vote for someone in politics who is only of my tribe, my ghetto, is not an idea that is called for by the Judeo or Christian tradition. The part in which I grew up, the Lutheran, is one well remarked upon by Martin Luther himself, who is said to have said, over against the principle of voting only for your own, better to be ruled by a smart Turk than a dumb Christian. The fact that he had to say that 400-some years ago suggests that what I'm talking about this noon is obviously not a new problem. It's as old 
as human social life. But it's more dangerous now in our more crowded world, in our world in which groups do bump into each other more than they did when a mountain separated them from each other or actual ghetto walls separated them. It's more dangerous in a world of propaganda, of technique of mind control, of terrorism, or because of the size of issues. And it's more problematic because we are losing faith in the alternatives, in the larger vision. We have most of us scrambled back and began to call into question some aspects of enlightenment, of reason, of those dimensions of religion that taught us to be responsive and empathic to others. This is not only, therefore, the problem of television ministers, people who sell best-selling books, advocating only their view of what ought to be taught in the schools. It can come from any direction, and the late Father John Courtney Murray said, be very careful, the barbarian today, the enemy of civility, the barbarian of today is not likely to be wearing a bear skin and carrying a caveman's club. The barbarian today might well be clad in a Brooks Brothers suit and be wielding a ballpoint pen or a typewriter. Summary to this point for the home stretch. Since I am not only a historian and in a way a theologian and a Christian minister, but also a journalist, I often picture if I had to write this up, what did he have said? <laughs> Marty charged. that in America and in the world around, people in groups are taking good things like group life and using them to crowd back and huddle into their own holes with their own like-minded types. In spite of the possibility that modern transportation and media have for bringing people closer to each other, we have seen paradoxically that they are retreating from the visions they had. He regretted that a vision of human concord and interaction is a vision deferred when it's most needed to meet the issues of the time. He accused his fellow intellectuals <laughs> of a failure of nerve to keep the vision of this kind of human interaction. He did acknowledge the value, the beauty, and the necessity of tribe, ghetto, cocoon, his images for separate group lives, but hoped that these could be put to a larger purpose. The story can't end there, so I shall close now with a little bit of a forward look. Marty prescribed, first, we need models. We need models that will give people confidence that they can cherish the values important to themselves undisturbed from without. They can be treated with dignity, reasoned with, and argued with. Sometimes the clash will be quite strong. Those of you who celebrated the 1500th anniversary of the Order of St. Benedict a year or two ago shall have to know that never was there a gentler rule than the Order of St. Benedict, whose motto is, let all guests be received as Christ. But the rule of St. Benedict knows that sometimes a guest comes and has to be argued with. And so the rule says, if contumacious guests come, you reason with them. And if they remain contumacious and contentious and will not listen to reason, then you have two stout monks explain the matter to them. <laughs> we, we may have to call attention to each other this need for rebuilding the republic. And my model is a community of communities, in Latin, the communitas communitatum, that goes back to Aristotle and was fashioned by a Dutch thinker named Althusius and confirmed by James Madison. We are a community of communities. The deepest beliefs that you have about life and death are formed in the tribe and the ghetto and the cocoon. The deepest motives for doing good in the world, I suppose, come from that. That's the sub-community, but the energies from it then mean that there's another <clears throat> button to press all the time to pull us into this realm of larger community. And this is the model I'd keep before us, nurturing the small while always seeing the larger vision. Secondly, we do need argument, not always of that Benedictine type of stout monks explaining, but we do need strenuous argument. The larger vision of a republic, 
The role of religion in a republic or of the human family is not of a cheap consensus. Consensus usually rules somebody out. Male consensus left women out. Senior consensus left junior out. White consensus left black out. Christian consensus left non-Christian out. What we need is a clarification of the order and purpose and rule of argument. John Courtney Murray, whom I've already quoted, liked to say, what we think is disagreement is usually confusion. And if you can move from confusion to disagreement, you can be in the first step toward agreement. And the forums of American life may well devote themselves to that these days. Third, we need empathy and responsiveness. Counter-intolerance, Marcel calls it. I haven't used the word tolerance because it can be such a cheap and easy word. Counter-intolerance is the outlook of people who are tempted to be intolerant because they believe something so deeply. And then it occurs to them that the depth of their own belief is the best guarantee to someone else of the integrity of their own. And I think we need a religious reconstruction along the way. I once spoke on a theme like this, and a New York alumnus of the University of Chicago said he had a simple solution, just do away with religion and it would all be fine. If religion is the motivator of some of these tensions. Well, religion won't be done away with. The human story is too full of passion and human agony too deep and human hope too high for religion to go away. Our question is, to what end shall it be put? But what interests me is that the great people of this century, Dorothy Day and Martin Luther King and Martin Buber, Mohandas Gandhi and John XXIII and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Alan Payton and Mother Teresa. Every name I put on a list like that, and you could add 20 more, are people who are deeply grounded in tribe, ghetto, cocoon. They spend their life reaching deeper and deeper into that tradition. So deep do they go that they're beginning to be free to borrow. King needed Gandhi. Gandhi needed Jesus. Pope John could talk to the non-religious. Thomas Merton was talking to Buddhist and Hindu monks up to the day he died. So deep that we can take risks on others without losing our own. And there is where we begin to find that larger human family. What I've said this noon is not something that by itself will help keep us from incinerating each other or improve the economy or whatever. But they will help keep the forum going out of which the cautions, the concerns, and the debates might grow. Back at two, three, however, the vision waits for its appointed time. It hastens toward the end. It will not lie. If it lingers, wait for it, for it will certainly come. Thank you. Uh, perhaps this ties in. What would a reconstructed Christian church look like, or reconstituted, I believe, is the word, reconstituted. I have a funny feeling because I answer him and then I don't get to see you over here and if I answer <laughs> look at you, it sounds like he isn't being heard. Uh, so I'll do it like watching a ping pong game. Uh, <laughs> reconstituted Christian church, I guess in my sense, my own vision of it, I hope it's biblical, is, a, is the same one I use for a republic, a communitas communitatum, a community of communities. Uh, Father Gregory Baum in Canada once said that the official Catholic definition of the church was that it was a family of apostolic churches. And I like to turn that around and say it is also a church of apostolic families. Uh, that is, I don't picture that tomorrow we have to give up the particular color and tonality that is given uh, life. The Amazing Grace traditions and the Bach traditions don't have to blend into something halfway between the two. They have to learn appreciation of each other and are doing so. But I would like to see a church for tomorrow in which people can combine the integrity of their separate visions with the appreciation of, of others. And there are tendencies toward that these days. In your address, you talked about the church relative to the uh, nuclear question and uh, the freeze. This question surfaces from the congregation, the audience. Do you think it appropriate that the issue of nuclear disarmament be addressed from pulpits in this country? I think it's appropriate to be addressed from pulpits, though that may not be its most effective forum. I think the pulpit has to give a certain kind of leadership to be sure that the people of very diverse viewpoints in the congregations uh, be impelled to examine the views they bring or the views they get in the light of the scripture or the teachings of the church or whatever. In other words, in the modern world, not to take a stand is to take a stand. Um, 
Hitler knew that. If you didn't speak up against him, he could count you. So you have to take a stand, but the pulpit is a very privileged place. We don't always even have these little yellow slips come up after it. And, and, uh, <laughs> and if there's, if there's uh, mind-changing to be going on, you have to think of the many kinds of expertise that are gathered in any congregation. Science, technology, business, industry, defense, they're all there. And I don't think we're going to come up with a single view, but I would dream that if the pulpit gives guidance, um, all sides, there aren't only two sides, would be impelled to listen to each other in the light of uh, the Word of God instead of just on the basis of the political opinions or the calculations that we bring. But uh, I don't see how we could be completely silent because the issue all sides agree is the stewardship of the earth, the custodianship of life itself, and that's on page one of the Bible. So however we come out of it, we do know it has to be on the agenda. Thank you. That's a very helpful answer. Today, the new federalism is changing the way government addresses social needs and provides funding from the local to national level. What impact do you see the new federalism having on American society, and what role do you think churches should play in addressing gaps in meeting human needs as a result of the new federalism? That's enough for four issues in next year's forum right there. <laughs> but uh, never let lack of time inhibit one from putting up a billboard. I'll at least put a few words up. Um, in many ways, of course, the new federalism is a, is a purely political and not a religious issue, and you can bring a lot of different attitudes toward it. Thus, if it works, fine. If it is uh, not to be followed, you better have something else in mind. I think the question is probably motivated by the fact that it is part of a whole system in which there are great cutbacks in the agencies and uh, directions of addressing welfare and poverty in America. There's no question but this is beginning to lead to a quickening in the churches. I've been in several gatherings, a marvelous one at Seattle recently, where the churches had a conference of about this many people saying, how do we take up some of the slack? But if you do absolutely everything that the churches can now conceive, you can't really do it all. The churches are important because they are in the gaps where the people are. They have access to people that nobody else does. It can be a corrective to impersonal bureaucracies. But I think we would really be evading the larger problem if we said the churches should do it all. The churches should be the, the forums where people are motivated to do what they can immediately. The Bible doesn't let you wait for a program. You hand the cup of water to the person in need instantly. But it also impels us to ask what are the best means to meet larger need. And this is going to be all through the 80s. This will be the issue. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Here's another question from the group. In the election of 1980, much publicity was given to the close alliance between some conservative religious groups and conservative political causes. Do you see this trend continuing today? What impact do you see this having on how the church addresses political issues? I do see the, that the alliance will continue, though it probably won't take quite the character it did in 1980. In 1980, uh, it acquired its uh, power through the novelty no one knew how big it was, no one knew what claims to make for it, and therefore it had a lot of power. Now the polls are in, and um, I understand the Republican National Committee, for example, has been urging its candidates not to take the endorsement of the moral majority uh -huh. because it might lose as many votes as gain them. Uh, that is, there was a sudden new force on the American scene. When the head of the moral majority was claiming 20 to 40 million television watchers, Nielsen and Arbitron found out after the election he had 1.5 million watchers. Washington knew that, and you could tell the morning after from what Vice President Bush said that it wasn't going to be dominated by it. I think it'll be more a local force than a national force. I think on selective issues it'll remain. Uh, it has a perfect right to do so. Uh, politics is a representation of interests. And my main message, this morning's New York Times, I have an editorial that says if you don't like somebody who's organized, representing one-fifth of the American people, what the other four-fifths should do is counter-organize. Keep the politicians busy on all sides. They are representing some legitimate interests in national life. They are sometimes distorting interests in national life. And therefore, I think that the forum is the place to take it on. Don't complain of their existence, but um, counter-organize if you disagree with them. Mm -hmm. Here's one that'll perhaps be cause for uh, asking you to come back. But the Christian century occasionally probes the minds of religious leaders in articles on how I've changed my thinking over the years. How have you changed your mind over the years? <laughs> <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> well, my motto behind this book is from a marvelous Swiss thinker, Eugen Rosenstock Hussey, 
I have some offspring back who always laugh when I do that because they know I don't like to quote him. It takes too much of the speech time. Eugen Rosenstock Hesse, whose life motto was respondeo et si mutabor. I respond, although I will be changed. I suppose in religion the biggest change that I've uh, uh, felt in the midst of great continuities is uh, I was brought up in a neo-Orthodox or neo-Lutheran era in which we were taught the clarity of the gospel in a way I hope I would never lose it. But we also were taught uh, in the the human realm not to pay a lot of attention, therefore, to any other spiritual uh, outbreak or striving or whatever. And I could just say that my own travels, my own later experience, uh, would agree more with what Vatican Council II does in Nostra Aetate, one of its documents, which says, we have to watch for the stirrings of God also among the people who aren't called by the name of Christ. This would never minimize my impulse to want to share that name, but it does mean that I had better learn to do more business with people who never heard it, never will, and yet may very well be working out the purposes of God in the world. That's probably the biggest single one I could point to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What examples do you see in America today of people who are working to bring new life to the larger vision that you discuss? Well, I've suggested that there are some people in the world of television. I chose that because that's the sphere we usually turn to to describe where the problem is. I think that, is this still on? Yes. (laughs) NBC wants equal time. I believe that these these efforts to reach on prime time, to reach people of all these different outlooks uh, is a sign of a respect shown to the separate groups. I'm not a Jew and can never really get inside Holocaust. I'm not a black and I can't get inside the slave experience. But they're really working at it is a sign in the midst of that vast wasteland, as they used to call it, that some people care. I believe that um, adult education in America, senior citizen education has been a marvelous uh, place for this. We are really learning to respect across generations more than we had in the past. I think, I better just say it, I think forums like this one are marvelous uh, examples. I think the spirit of a city like Seattle, which had been America's least church-going city, is seeing a great awakening now over the both sides of the nuclear debate and the welfare dispute. It's a troubled great city, and when I go to a place like that and I see the initiative coming from the churches, indeed it was the black churches of Seattle that started this, uh, I would just point to that kind of thing. My vision of American life, if, if, if Dusselbaker Time calls it, where's the great new movement? I always say, I can't point to it, but I can take you on a tour. I can show you a little church in a little town that you never heard of. I could take you to Welland, Iowa. Welland, Iowa, where eight churches are having nuclear forums all the time. Why? 500 people in that little town are employed in making part of the bomb. Uh, If we have nuclear disarmament, uh, the congregations disappear. It's a very live issue, and this is Mm. something we'd better think about. And I give those people great credit for the courage to take it on in the way they are. So I'd take you on tour and say, that's where we'll find it. Or individual lives, which are also marvelous examples. People that never get their names in print, but uh, Mm. stir people near them. Another question. You mentioned the need for religious reconstruction. Would you care to comment on what feminists are doing to reconstruct religion, both within churches and outside of traditional churches? All right. This certainly has to be one of the biggest changes in religion. The majority of people in Western religion have uh, practicing worshipers have been women through the centuries, and yet they were not normally a part of the leadership group. And this has changed very suddenly in the last 20 years. There's been more change than in the previous 20 centuries. And however slow it might be, Habakkuk 2.3 says the vision is here and it will increase. But I don't think we should just look at uh, the important uh, symbol of ordained clergy or leadership of that sort, uh, however exciting the changes are on that front or frustrating for some, in some communions. Um, I would say it has led to a, a rethinking not just of the pronouns we use, they're very important signals, I could say for my own world, um, uh, as a writer of church history, we used to write church history in the light of which bishop succeeded which bishop, and which prayer book revision succeeded which prayer book revision. And at the end, the index had 1,500 men's names in there, and uh, we didn't really get close to the people. Today we're writing in the light of uh, family history, uh, history of uh, stages of life, histories of religion and adolescence, a marvelous study of colonial America that, religion and aging, Uh, religion and sexuality, domesticity, work, labor, are issues that women historians and theologians brought forward because these were the realms in which they were once uh, relegated to have their only competences, 
and there's a history to be told. And I think that this, from my world, the historical or theological, has its corollaries everywhere else. Um, many things of the 50s and 60s were fads and came and went. Many of the early stages of secular feminism are long gone, but I think across the spectrum, including, don't overlook them, the evangelical churches, even those which still deny ordination to women. Uh, I, I've gone to a lecture uh, against the ordination of women by women who are really preaching. <laughs> uh, I've, heard, I've heard Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot's and Corey Ten Boom's and people like this, and uh, everybody says, my, it's nice to belong to a church that doesn't allow women to preach the gospel. And they go, what a wonderful thing they preach the gospel. Uh, Salvation Army started it all, so let's pay attention. It can come from that front, too. Thank you. Dr. Marty, this question goes this way. What do you perceive to be the historical connections between the present church initiatives in the American and European anti-nuclear movement and prior church involvement in past social and peace uh, movement issues? What are the new elements uh, uh, with uh, this decade's movement? The other night, the undergraduates asked my president, Hannah Gray, and me to uh, think of something that people thought of as being new in their time, and then as historians to comment whether it was unprecedented or not. We really couldn't think of anything. There's always a precedent. Uh, and so I see causes like prohibition and abolition and so on, uh, occasions when people in the past said we have to marshal all our energies to face this or that issue. And by mentioning prohibition and abolition, you can see right away that there are also hazards in the nuclear debate. Uh, there are hazards of... Uh, of uh, making the most urgent cause the only cause in life. Let's remember people are dying of other things or hoping for other things as well. So I think we have to keep that, sure. Uh, it's easy for us uh, to, to be fanatics in that kind of desperately urgent cause. And yet I don't think you convince people when out of fanaticism, you convince people by being identified closely with them. I think it's uh, important for the churches, quote, not to blow it. Uh, I think that it's a beautiful start now in that this is a movement that has really grown up in the pews, it has really grown up among the people themselves. And I think if it gets typed by the media or anyone else as being uh, a cause of uh, a few radicals or something like that, we're likely to lose the biblical rootage that is now impelling it. So maybe what's relatively new in comparison to some of the uh, causes, certainly of the 1960s, is that this is not so much a leadership top-down cause as something born of the instincts and fears of the people who've been looking for a voice and seem to be asking their leadership uh, lead us into a clarification of the issue. Mm -hmm. Thank you. you. You've mentioned television and the media uh, once or twice. Uh, would you care to give your perspective on the so-called electronic church? Well, the electronic church is the code name we give, I guess, for every kind of use of uh, the mass media communication, but uh, there is, um, it really has converged now around eight or 10 or 12 television empires mm -hmm. that were seen as competitive with the church. In other words, Billy Graham has always used television, but he was never called the electronic church because he worked so closely with the other churches. Uh, he'd never come to your town unless the Catholic bishop and the Methodist bishop would be on stage uh -huh. with him or so on. Whereas in the electronic church, they tend to be more competitive. It's, it's their own show. They'll say nice things about go to church, but basically they're in a very competitive thing for the funds, the dollars of a, of a limited 20, 30 million American market. Uh, they do some good things. I think a ministry to shut-ins, uh, a personalization of things. They are a good uh, critical judgment on some of the awful things that go on earlier in the evening on prime time. But uh, one of the things that my suspicious kind of mind notes is that when ABC does a survey to see how many Americans watched soap at the time the uh, boycott was being threatened. 13.8% of the American people had soap on that night, and 13% of the people who claimed to be in the moral majority had soap on that night. So I'm not sure that it has really removed the competition. It merely has added more hours of watching to the schedule and calendar. Um, I worry about celebrity cult and the clientels in religion. Uh, many of these empires um, are unaccountable. Many of them end in fiscal, sometimes sexual scandal, and um, they, they can create a generation of people who, who dabble in religion instead of being deeply engaged in the, in the uh, communities. But I think five, six years ago, I worried more about those effects than I do now. We know now it's limits. We know that it can do some things for people. And again, uh, for me, the big message is if you strengthen the local churches, you satisfy a lot of the impulses that led people uh, away. 
mm -hmm. in the electronic church. Here's a lovely one. You were advertised as the second most influential theologian in the USA. <laughs> if you accept that rating, who would you put first? <laughs> would you, should we go on to the next question? Well, I mean, would you ask Avis? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Okay. Ready for another question? Since <laughs> I believe you, your one of your most recent, if not your most recent, book has to do with uh, the subject of friendship, and I think that gives rise to this question: Since quality friendships have been and are important to you, what are some steps that uh, the tribe can take to foster quality friendships with people who are of different tribes? I would begin by trying to find one close friend outside my own. It's an interesting thing. If you take a, a list of the people that you tend to know, you rarely develop true intimacy apart from the people that you went to college with, grew up in a church with, or part of your family connection or whatever. And uh, even in later life, like meets like. And yet uh, we miss a lot because of that. And I think that it's, um, friendship is not very interesting. Friends are marvelous. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, actual identification with someone to begin to learn that network uh, I must say, uh, in my own case, uh, a senior black secretary at the University of Chicago who had serious surgery last week, uh, I called on her, and to my, or two weeks ago, to my great surprise, one of my sons, just back from Africa, walked into the room. Uh, why? Well, because while I was in Africa, you were forwarding all these messages about my mom when she was sick, and it suddenly occurred to me he'd never met her, and they were friends out mm. of our friendship. And I would say that would be the very first step know somebody from a group vastly different from your own, religiously, uh, politically, racially, and you begin to become a part of a network that builds confidence uh, toward others. So concrete friends are more important than debates about friendship. Thank you. I think we'd best arrest our question period at this point. You spoke of yourself earlier as historian, theologian, minister, journalist. You've given good account of yourself on all counts. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs>